Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we just witnessed a, a very wonderful thing. Our sister Abby was joined to the communion of this church, to the church of the Lord Jesus, by the profession of her faith and by her baptism. She joins us in confessing the Lord Jesus Christ, in, in bearing the mark which says, I belong to Jesus. I am a follower of Christ. Now, what does it mean? What does it mean to bear that mark? What does it mean to be called a follower of Christ? What does it mean for Abby? What does it mean for us? Well, our text answers that question. Now, in our text, in the context, Jesus is going with his disciples into the district of Caesarea Philippi, verse 13. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, the disciples have come to recognize what Peter confesses in verse 16, that glorious confession of Simon Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, do you notice what happens right after that glorious confession? Look at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed. You see, the more that the disciples come to recognize the glory of the Messiah, the more they have to learn that he will come into his glory only through humiliation, suffering, and shameful death. That's why right after Peter's confession, Jesus announces for the first time the way of suffering and death that he must follow. And if you look at chapter 17, we see it again. In chapter 17, there's this glorious occasion where Peter and James and John see the Lord Jesus Christ resplendent and transfigured and shining like the sun in all his glory. And what happens right after that? Right after the transfiguration experience. Look at verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And look at verse 12. I tell you, Elijah has already come. But look at the end of the verse. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And if you look at verse 22. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. So, repeatedly, the glory of Christ is acknowledged, but the way to that glory is taught. And how do the disciples receive this? Well, even the most mature disciples, the ones with the most leadership skills, they can't handle it. Look at the reaction of Peter. Peter says, Jesus, come here. He takes him aside because Peter's going to fix this. He's, an, he's a leader. He takes initiative. And he begins to chastise the Lord Jesus. He begins to rebuke him. And the word here that we have translated in verse 22, far be it from you, that phrase, he's kind of saying something like this, mercy me, gracious. He's kind of saying, the Greek is kind of like this, Good grief! That's never going to happen. In fact, there's a double negative there, which you're allowed to do in Greek. That's not never going to happen. 
Peter's pretty emphatic here. Now, just moments before, Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Christ. And right now, a few moments later, Peter is certain that he will never let Jesus be the Christ. He will not let Jesus fulfill his office as Christ to die for his people. Not going to happen on my watch. You see that Peter doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't know what he's saying. But Jesus sees in the words of Peter a diabolical temptation. Now, at this point in, in Matthew, Jesus is about six months before his death. And the way of suffering and death is becoming ever more clear to him. We have to understand that Jesus is true man learned who he was and of his task and of all that he needed to do through the Holy Scriptures, through the help of the Holy Spirit. He relied on the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. So he's understanding more and more clearly that that his duty is to go towards suffering and, and death. The devil also has this figured out. The devil has been around for thousands of years, and he's had time to, to learn a lot of theology. You see that because when the Lord Jesus begins his ministry, who are the first to recognize him as the Son of God? It's the demons. They say, we know who you are, the Son of God. And so the devil is quicker than the disciples to grasp the importance of the way of the cross. That's why way back in Matthew chapter 4, you remember, we we had a sermon on that, the the, the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the devil was already trying to say, you you don't need to go the suffering route. Why don't you just take the easy way out? And so that same temptation comes here again. Avoid the suffering. Avoid the way of the cross. And Jesus sees in the words of Peter, he sees the devil's work. And so he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Just a few moments before, Peter made this glorious confession. And now the Lord Jesus is saying, get behind me, Satan. He says it to Peter. There's a lesson here for us that we ought never to relax our vigilance in spiritual battle. One moment, Peter is being praised by Jesus, singled out for honor amongst the disciples. A few moments later, Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. You see, the devil often attacks us right after glorious spiritual moments in our life. And we're just exulting and happy and rejoicing. We're on the spiritual high. And that's when the devil often unleashes his most vile attacks. And suddenly then, Peter is not a rock on which to build the church, or his confession is not a rock on which to build the church. That's not in focus anymore. But now the Lord Jesus says, you are a a hindrance or literally a, a stone of stumbling. A stumbling block, a scandal that Satan is putting in Jesus' path. Now, Jesus doesn't just see Peter as, an, as a passive instrument of Satan. Look at verse 23. 
He says, he says this to Peter. He's not saying this about the devil. He's saying, Peter, you, you don't set your things on the things of God. You don't set your mind on the things of God. You set your mind on the things of man. So there was something in Peter's heart that welcomed Satan's suggestion. He's not worried about Jesus' offers, but he's worried about the consequences for him and the other disciples, especially for him. And we know, we know what happens later. We know that for all his blustering, when the push comes to shove, Peter denies Christ in order to save his own skin. And we see the seed of that right here. He's focused on the things of man. If my rabbi, if my teacher is going to be mistreated and, and even killed, well, then what's going to happen to me? I don't like this. That's not going to happen. So the Lord Jesus says, you know what, Peter, you, gotta, you, gotta, you need a change of attitude. You're setting your, th- your mind on the things of God, not on the, uh, things of man, not on the things of God. And there's a, there's a lesson for us here. There's, a, there's, a, there's something which confronts us here. Look at this pandemic. Look at all the restrictions and the, the way that our lives have been turned upside down in so many ways. How are we seeing things? What are we concerned about during this pandemic? Are we concerned about the things of God or the things of man? Are we, are we concerned about what God is doing? What his plan is? What he is working in the world? What he is doing in our hearts and in our lives? What he is teaching us? How he is lovingly disciplining us and sculpting us and preparing us? Is that what we're focusing on? Or are we focusing on the things of man, our inconveniences, that we might lose our standard of living? We might lose our summer. What's the main focus? The things of God or the things of man? Now, notice how the Lord Jesus answers. His answer to Peter is not to double down on his suffering, his death. He doesn't say, Peter, you're telling me it's not going to happen. I'm telling you it's going to happen. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. He doesn't go there. But Jesus answers Peter with an emphatic description of the consequences for everyone who follows him. And that's, those are the words of our text. He says, Peter, you can't run away from this. You can't make this not happen. This is what's going to happen. And I'm telling you, This is what's going to happen to me. And if anyone would come after me, let him take the same road. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, Jesus teaches us here that the essence of the Christian life is radical discipleship. Now, often when we talk about the cross in the Christian life, we we, we think of afflictions and, and sufferings, that we all have our cross to bear. And that's certainly part of it. But the first, the primary, the clearest, the most, the most simple meaning of Jesus' words is this. If you want to come after me, you have to give up every thought of self-protection and personal security. You have to be ready to follow me to death, to give up everything you have. 
to give up your life itself. Let me be explicit. To die for me if necessary. And so the Lord Jesus teaches us that the way of faith is not easy street. It is not the way of self-promotion and self-interest and half-hearted commitment while the going is good. Jesus teaches us the way which is all or nothing. And he says, basically, look, Peter, I'm going to the cross to die, to save my people. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be mistreated. I'm going to be killed. You want to be my disciple? Well, then you need to follow me on that road. Don't follow me only when the things are going good. Don't follow me with your eyes darting all around to make your escape the minute that the going gets tough, the the minute it starts getting uncomfortable or unpleasant. Radical obedience to the very ultimate consequences. Obedience to the death. That is my way. And that's the way for everyone who wants to be my disciple. Brothers and sisters, this word of the Lord Jesus is not just for Peter, it's for us too. You know, it's so easy to lose the plot when we're sitting in a very, well, some of us, sitting in a very pleasant building and comfortable pews, and the rest of us very comfortably ensconced on our couches or chairs there at home. And when we're living in a wealthy society and most of us have comfortable homes and food on the table and it's so easy to have our faith, our Christianity as one more nice little ornament in our lives. It's so easy to lose the plot. If you look at Luke chapter 9 where Luke records this same word of the Lord Jesus. He, he adds a word which makes it even clearer what the Lord Jesus is saying. He says what, what uh, Matthew records here, but then he adds one word. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Daily. That's the Christian life. It is a life of daily self-denial. You want to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, that's not a one-time transaction. It's not just, okay, baptize me, and then later on I'll profess my faith, and I'll sit down and, and wake me up when we get to heaven. But if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, that means a daily disposition to die to self and to live for Christ, to deny yourself. Those are frightening words for our psychotherapeutic culture. And it gets even worse if you read the Lord's Supper form, which says that detesting ourselves, we must humble ourselves before God. What about self-esteem? Aren't the words of Jesus kind of dangerous here? When he tells us to deny ourselves, doesn't that leave us in a dangerous place, low self-esteem. Well, brothers and sisters, we need to pay some attention at this moment to what the words of the Lord Jesus do not mean. In the first place, 
The Lord Jesus is not teaching here some kind of oriental religion like Buddhism, which says that the greatest good is to just lose yourself in an ocean of divinity, just to to lose all desire, to lose all individuality, to lose your identity, to just become a, a drop, another drop in the ocean of divinity. That's not what Jesus is saying. On the contrary, the Bible teaches us to celebrate individuality, to celebrate the uniqueness of each member of the body of Christ. Everyone has diverse gifts and contributes in their own way to the life of the body. So that's not what Jesus is teaching that you just erase yourself or that you get erased. And Jesus is also not teaching us to suppress any desire for comfort or any rejoicing in material gifts. He's not calling us to a life of asceticism. It's the opposite. The Bible teaches that God placed man on the earth surrounded by a wealth of resources to delight in, to explore, to develop, to use for his glory wonderful trees and plants and flowers and fruits and gold and, and all kinds of precious stones. And God said to them, go for it, enjoy it, develop it, delight in it, revel in it for my glory. And in the same way that he was very strong in his prohibition, on the day that you eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, dying you shall die, you shall surely die. So he uses a similar construction when he tells them, to eat the fruit of the garden. He says, eating, you shall eat. You shall surely eat. Go for it. Enjoy yourself. So God made us to delight in the good things of his creation. And Jesus came to restore that. So again, in him, we can rejoice in the good things that God has made. Paul says, in fact, that, that just the act of eating and drinking is a liturgical act. It is, a, is an act which brings glory to God. So it's not a coincidence that the leaders of Israel complained when John the Baptist led a simple and ascetic life, but they also complained when Jesus came eating and drinking and feasting. Remember what Jesus' first miracle was? It's always rather shocking when we think about it, isn't it? His very first miracle was an abundance of the very best wine at the wedding in Cana. Now, I'm not sure that that would be the recommendation of any consistory, of any church, that that would be the first miracle. But that's what the Lord Jesus did. And it's delightfully shocking. It teaches us something about him. Jesus spoke strongly against those who with perpetually long faces invented all kinds of rules and regulations to restrict the enjoyment of legitimate pleasures that God placed in creation for us to enjoy. So deny yourself is not a call to lose your individuality, to be erased as a person. It is not a call to deny comfort and, and pleasure, thinking that, that being ascetic will necessarily make us more spiritual. That's what it doesn't mean. What, what does it mean then? What positively is the meaning here? Well, we need to understand these words in light of the example of our Lord himself. The foundational principle of his life was love for God and love for his neighbor. He was so committed to this principle that he was ready to deny himself anything, even things which in themselves were legitimate and not sinful, if denying these things 
would be for the glory of God and the good of his neighbor. So Jesus denied himself comfort, not because he thought that being uncomfortable was more spiritual, more holy. No, Jesus denied himself comfort, not even having a place to lay his head, because that was necessary for his mission. The mission that he was on to save his people, an urgent mission. So he placed his comfort, his health, his sleep, his time, his body, his convenience, even his life itself. He placed in service to the supreme guiding principle of his life to fulfill the law, to fulfill the great commandments, love God, love your neighbor. And when we understand the self-denial of Jesus in this way, we understand better what the Apostle Paul says to the Philippians in chapter 2. If you look at chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul is speaking to a divided church. And his answer to division in the church is not practical, it's theological. He comes with an answer of doctrine. He says, you need to have the mind of Christ. And then he describes the glorious way of the cross, that he humbled himself even unto death and then was greatly exalted. Now the church is called to follow Jesus on that path, placing everything we have, everything we are, in service to this principle, to glorify God and love our neighbor. And this means that sometimes we have to put in second place desires that in themselves are legitimate. If this act of self-denial would serve to better glorify God or better promote the good of our neighbor. Now imagine what the church would be like if every one of us was following this radical pattern of discipleship. Jesus calls us to turn the other cheek, to walk two miles with the one who obliges us to walk one mile, to give our cloak to the one who wants to take our tunic. Now we have to understand here that this attitude of self-denial is only worth something. It's only holy and, and healthy when in submission to the great commandment of love. If our self-denial doesn't serve to glorify God, if our self-denial is not for the good of our brother, our sister, our neighbor, then it is vain. It is an exercise in futility. How we need to learn this lesson. How often in the church of the Lord Jesus, don't we attack each other and despise and mistreat and put down one another in the name of truth? We're so convinced that we're right, and certainly we can't deny ourselves the satisfaction of being right. And so we use Bible texts and ecclesiastical policies and structures to put each other down and to make sure that our opinion, that our desires prevail. And if there are if there's a difference of opinion on some point, it threatens the very health and life of the congregation. Brothers and sisters, we need God's help. We need this mind, which was in Christ Jesus, to place all of our knowledge, our gifts, our eloquence, our intelligence, our opinions, 
our desires, our projects, our plans, our ideas, to place them all in submission to the great commandment, to love God and love the neighbor. We are citizens of the heavenly kingdom, walking as pilgrims on the way to the new Jerusalem. And we place everything we are and everything we have in service to the greatest goal of our existence. And that goal is the fulfillment of the law of love, to be with Christ in glory forever. And anything which brings us closer to this goal, no matter how much it hurts, we embrace. And anything which distracts us from that goal, no matter how pleasant it is, we reject. So the Lord Jesus continues in verse 25. He, he says, he tells us why. Why we, would, why we need to deny ourselves. Why we need to take up our cross and follow him. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So why deny yourself? Why take up the cross? Why follow the Lord Jesus? Because this is the shockingly counterintuitive way to life and to glory. The only way. You see, for the sinner, Christ turns everything upside down. It is life through death. It is victory through defeat. It is eternal riches through losing everything. It is eternal love and communion through suffering hatred and being forsaken. It is glory through humiliation. Now, these words of our Savior confront us. How often, as individual Christians and as church, we seek the way of the theology of glory. We avoid, like the plague, the way of the cross. How often we try to find a way to, to save face, to, to avoid embarrassment, to keep up the appearance that everything is okay, everything's in order. Just sweep it under the carpet. We refuse to acknowledge the failures, the weakness, the sin. We find a way to patch things up real quick without it being too uncomfortable, without getting to the root of the problem. Let's just pretend that everything's okay in our lives and in the church. We're happy as long as our Christianity looks good on Instagram. And the word of God confronts us. Are we willing to confess our weakness, our failures? Are we willing to confess our sins to one another? Are we willing to confess our corporate sins? Are we willing to risk being uncomfortable? Are we willing to accept that our ideas, our lifestyle, our plans, our choices might be exposed as things that we need to deny, to give up in order to promote the edification of our brother, the upbuilding of the church, the glory of God, the progress and advance of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ in St. Albert. Now, Jesus teaches us that the definition of success in the economy of the kingdom of God is far different than in the world. Look at verse 25 again. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We need to understand. The devil doesn't have a problem with people going to church. The devil doesn't have a problem with people being religious. As long as the devil has a foothold in our, in our hearts, he's got no problem with people keeping up a Christian facade. You see, the devil always comes with the same old temptation. Take the shortcut to glory. Take the broad and the easy way. Don't follow the way of humiliation, suffering, self-denial, the way of the cross, the way of the Christ. Don't. It's too painful. It's too unpleasant. It is not worth giving up what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. It's not worth it, he says. What do you mean? Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. You're going to be nuts. You're going to be crazy. And so the devil comes with another suggestion. He says, bow the knee to me, worship me. I'll give you all of your heart's desires. And that's how he tempted the Lord Jesus in the wilderness. And that's how he tempts us. And temptation is real. Every time we have to make a choice, a decision, And every time we choose to sin, we're choosing not to deny ourselves, but to deny Christ. So the devil comes to us in moments of decision, and he says, are you really going to give up that relationship with that good-looking guy just because he's not a believer, just because the Bible says that you should not be unequally yoked? Are you crazy? You need a husband. You need to be happy. Are you actually going to lose money because of some moral hang-ups imposed on you by some loser that died 2,000 years ago on a cross? Are you crazy? Are you going to set back your career for decades and waste your mind and your education just because that old book says that the glorious mission of a mother is in the first place to bring up and teach her children? Are you going to lose out on a job or a contract or a sale because some ancient law says that you're supposed to stop working one day a week? The devil has a proposal for us. He says, it's okay, you can follow Jesus if you want to with my blessing, but the minute the way of Christ gets inconvenient, the minute you have to give something up, the minute it hurts, the minute it costs something, the minute it interferes with your dreams, your aspirations, your plans, your desires, the minute it is going to diminish your comfort and increase your suffering, that's the moment that you have to say, that's enough, Jesus. I've got my life to live, and you are asking for too much. What is Jesus' answer? Look at verse 25 again. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Don't fool yourself. There is only one true life. Only one place which offers true joy, 
true happiness, true success, true fulfillment, and that is to be in eternal glory with the Lord Jesus Christ. And to get there, there is only one way. It is the way of the cross, the way of radical discipleship, the way in which we give up everything to receive more than everything. So what is the lifestyle that you have chosen? There are two options. There are two ways to live. Either you try to hold on to everything in order to lose it all, or you just give up everything in order to gain everything. And on that great day which is coming, everything which right now we consider so important, so desirable, will be revealed as utterly worthless. In the eternal scheme of things, our career, the great monuments to our success in academics and sports and art and business, they will all fade into utter insignificance compared to the brilliance of the unfading crown of glory which God has reserved for us. And imagine on that day the despair of those who exchanged an eternal crown of glory for the fleeting glory of worldly human success. Now this reminds me of a scene in Pilgrim's Progress where Pilgrim sees a, a, a man that is locked in a cell and he's rummaging through dirt and muck and he's looking or something that he considers valuable. And above him is an angel holding a golden crown. He just has to look up. But he doesn't look up. And he keeps rummaging and rummaging and looking at the muck and the filth. And that's the foolishness of the theology of glory. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Brothers and sisters, this applies to us as individuals. But it also applies to us as a body, as a group, as a church. You see, it's a great temptation for us as church also to, to try to save our life, to seek worldly success at any cost. Oh, we're really good at disguising it with lots of pious words and lots of Bible talk, lots of God talk. But so often the church makes the mistake of thinking, well, you know what, even if we have to be disobedient to the Word, even if we have to adjust a doctrine here and adapt a biblical teaching there to be more palatable to the world, the important thing is that the world finds us cool and relevant and acceptable in their eyes. Wouldn't it be amazing if unregenerate sinners who are children of wrath, who live hating God, hating one another and being hated, if they came into church and felt at home and felt comfortable and felt attracted to what we're doing. So the evil of pragmatism can creep into the church where we think not what is obedient, but we think what works what gets more people into the building? What gets more success? 
What gets more applause from the influencers and the cool people? Brothers and sisters, if we want to see the gospel spread in St. Albert and Alberta and in Canada and around the world, if we want to see the church grow and flourish, we need to plan our strategies and measure the metrics of success according to the economy of the kingdom of God. We cannot be a flourishing church, a growing church, a missional church by following human ideas, by embracing the latest fads which come from minds enamored with worldly success, offering to the world teachings and practices which they find acceptable and attractive. There is a way in which the church as a whole can fall into the trap of thinking that she is saving her ecclesiastical life while in fact she is losing it. In our text, the Lord Jesus calls us to a different way. The way for us as individual Christians and the way that we all walk together as the body of Christ, it is a gloriously, mind-blowingly, counterintuitive way. It is the way of the cross. It is the way of Jesus, a life of humble obedience and self-denial. What did it get Jesus? It got him the shameful death on the cross. But through this path of suffering and shame, he worked salvation for a multitude which no man can number. Through his death, he brought life and life in abundance. Through his humiliation, he was highly exalted and given the name which is above every name. And this glorious and exalted and ruling and sovereign Lord Jesus Christ calls to us from heaven today. And he says, follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And when we as members, as office spirits, and as church, when we put Jesus' words into practice, when we embrace the way of the cross then we can be certain that we will share in the glory of our risen Savior. So, brother and sister, down with our natural pride, down with the foolishness of our old nature, down with the sinful desire to look for worldly success at the cost of eternal glory, down with that pathetic need to seek the approval of man, down with the vile temptation to adapt the church's teaching and practice to make the, the gospel more palatable to the unregenerate, down with that wicked and unregenerate desire for our comfort before obedience. And let us embrace the way of the cross. Let us embrace the humiliation, the shame, the indignity, the ridicule, the ill treatment, the suffering, the persecution, which necessarily mark the life of those who follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Let us follow that way, confident that when we give up everything we have, and everything we are, and when we are ready to give up our very life for him, then we will save it. Then we will find it. So let's do it. Let's do it. Let's deny ourselves. Seek the good of the other. 
encourage one another in the way of obedience and let's hold hands and together walk the way of the cross until finally we come into eternal glory. Amen.